you would, I'd like to open with a prayer, and then we'll dive into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, would you open your Word to us today? Would you help us to see the living hope that is Jesus? Father, your Word is powerful, and it shapes us. May we be shaped by these words, and may we leave different people than when we came. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Several years ago, when I was a youth minister at a church in Abilene, it was a large church, and we had a large auditorium, and it was much more of a fan-shaped type auditorium, and it had a large aisle that ran right down the middle. And somewhere as we were in the middle of the worship, I wasn't the preacher, I was the youth minister. As the preacher's going along, a child starts to become very vocal. And notice, and by the way, as I tell this story, let me just be very clear. I love hearing our kids. Okay, It does not bother me. But it bothered this mom and dad. And they became very concerned about how loud and agitated and distracting their child was being. And you begin to hear, even though I wasn't next to them, you begin to hear, shh, shh. Quiet. Shh, shh. So that was mom's effort. At some point, she's exasperated, and so she turns it over to dad to become engaged with the situation now and kind of hear. And so he's doing his best. The child's just getting louder and louder, and this is not a baby. This is a toddler that can be vocal. And so finally, dad's reached his threshold, and so he sweeps the child up, kind of throws the child over his shoulder there, and he's out that big main aisle, and he's moving as fast as he can. And he goes through the double doors, and just as the doors come to a close, this child, I'm not making this up, the child screams out, pray for me. That child either had Jesus or was going to meet Jesus. One, one of the two. But the very last words are often the most important words, aren't they? You've been in a conversation and you're really trying to communicate something with a spouse or a loved one or maybe it's a parent-child, maybe it's a coworker, but there's something on the table that you really need to discuss and maybe you're coming to the end of the phone call or whatever it is, and you're like, okay, but, but I need you to hear this. I, I, I need you to pay attention. Here's what I'm trying to say. Maybe it's at the end of the text message. And you've said it all before, but you really are trying to drive it home because it's so important. Just like a child saying, pray for me. Well, that's what Peter does in this letter that we've been receiving as a letter to us. It wasn't originally written directly to us. It was written to churches that Peter pastored, that he encouraged, that he was trying to shepherd and encourage and grow them up in the faith. Because these churches, if you remember, they're under persecution. They're struggling. Culture and government have come together and are not making it easy for those that are holding up Jesus as the way, that are following Jesus 
as Lord, no longer making the claim that Caesar is Lord, but claiming only that Jesus is Lord. And it's in that process, it's in that process that Peter is saying, I want you to hold on to your faith. I want you to hold on to the faith in spite of the challenges that's going on. I want you to hold on to the faith in spite of that which is working against your faith right now. Is that unlike our world today? Is that any different? Where we're up against this challenge. And what Peter is challenging them to do is to go beyond their religion. We, Jesus did not come to give us more religion. And by religion, I mean if I will just do a certain set of practices, if I will just do a certain set of habits, if I will just follow the certain set of rules, God's going to just somehow see that I'm comfortable, that I'm taken care of, maybe even successful, and perhaps even enjoy a very luxurious life. It's almost as if we think that we can enter into a contract with God. God, I'll uphold my end if you'll deliver the goods. And that theology works for a very short time in some places, but most of us experience something in life where we go, it's gone off the rails. I've got a diagnosis that no longer supports that. I've lost my job. Somebody brought suit against us. My kids that I've, I wanted them to remain faithful, they're no longer, and I'm struggling with that. And it just doesn't work out super simple, easy, like we'd like. And what Peter's saying is, trying to get more religious in the face of persecution and struggle and challenges is not going to deliver that. But what Peter has offered up throughout this letter is the living hope. To move beyond the simple practices of religion and move into a relationship with the one that went to a cross, suffered greatly, was buried in a tomb, and yet three days later walked out alive. That's where Peter is trying to take this group of Christians that have been scattered. Remember, they no longer feel at home in the world. Their address may not have changed, but they still feel displaced. They're out of place in their place. They feel like they're very odd up against the culture. It says you have a living hope from just a religion to a relationship with God. And that's what he's trying to encourage us. And so, again, we'll begin with his last words. If you have your scripture journals, I want you to open to, to page 22. If you've got a Bible or an app, we're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to be finishing up this final chapter. But I want to just jump right to the end, or almost the end, as we look at these words. Jump with me. This is verse 12. This is two two verses away from the very end. By, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, 
I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is like the summary statement of his letter. I've written to you, declaring and exhorting the true grace of God. Jesus, I want you to stand firm in it. Yes, the winds of culture are blowing against you. Yes, government is not on your side. Your party is not in power. Rome is doing you no favors. The economic system that you exist in is not trustworthy. It's not as stable as it used to be. Stand firm. And so this is what sums up the letter and this chapter 5 that we're going to look at the second half of today. This is where Peter is pointing us. Because he wants us not just to know Bible stuff. He's not writing this letter just so we'll memorize more scriptures. That's good, but that's not why he writes this letter. He's writing this letter because people that he cares about, that he prays for, that he's concerned about, they are struggling. Maybe you are too. So chapter, um, verse 6, we'll back up in chapter 5, and we'll go at it this way. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read through this section with you, and then we'll come back and we'll walk through it together. But it's only 6 through verse, verse 11, so it's not many verses. Here's the words of Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter has taken him basically back through all the themes of his letter. This is, again, this is his kind of last words. Before I go, don't miss this. So what I'd like to do is walk back through that with Peter and let Peter instruct us now, how do we move from beyond religion? How do we stand firm in what he's calling us to? How do we remain rooted in this even though we can't control what the government does? We can't control what culture does. We can't control what trends on social media. We have no power over that. And yet Peter's going to say, in the middle of that storm, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your struggle, you can stand firm. And not only stand firm, but he's going to be audacious enough to suggest that you can have peace in the middle of it. So let's look. Verse 6. I'm going to highlight some words here, and we'll, we'll talk about them as we go. And if you want to follow along in your journal, I definitely encourage you to do that and make some notes. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. We'll come back to that in just a second. But that seems like a strange thing to say if you remember the context 
of the people that originally received this. Remember, they're at the bottom of the totem pole. They're, they're kind of being kicked by all of society right now. They don't have rights. They don't have some of the freedoms. They don't have some of the leverage. They don't have any of the advantages because, again, they're no longer making a claim that Caesar is Lord. They're saying Jesus is Lord. And yet Peter says, humble yourself. I can almost see some of them going, humble ourselves? How do we get any lower than what we are right now, Peter? Are you unaware of what's going on? And yet Peter is not telling them to somehow stop thinking about themselves. You know, or think less of themselves. What Peter's doing, he's calling them into a relationship with how they see God. Because notice what it says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself before God. God. Now, here's what I believe Peter's doing. Peter is taking his readers, these churches, back to the Garden of Eden. He's encouraged them to think about the beginning of this. And in fact, you're going to see some of these themes as we go through this very short section. But he's taking them back to the Garden. And if, if you remember the story of the Garden of Eden, when God created the first thing you need to know about the Garden of Eden is the creation story is that as it progresses through in Genesis 1 and 2, there's this recurring theme. God says, this is good. He creates something. He says, this is good. He creates light. He says, this is good. He creates water. This is good. He creates a, a duck-billed platypus. He says, this is good. It's weird, but it's good. And he keeps saying, this is good. He creates Adam And he creates Eve, and he says, this is really good. And he sets the first man and woman up in paradise with a very intimate relationship with them. It even describes how he would walk in the cool of the evening with them. You know, last week we sang a song, says, I've come to the garden alone. And it was this picture of, I'm walking through the garden. Now that particular is referencing the Garden of Gethsemane. But the theme of a garden is this idea that they were walking intimate with God. And he gave them complete dominion over this paradise. And in the middle of this paradise, he put two trees. The tree of life. And they were supposed to take of that. But the one place where he put a restriction was on the other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It says of this tree you don't eat. And Adam and Eve, I don't know how long it lasted, but they understood that restriction for a while, I guess, whatever, maybe 15 minutes, I don't know. But like our children, God said, don't touch. And somehow we couldn't resist it. And Satan shows up in the form of a serpent. And what Satan begins to do is very unique. 
he starts saying, did God say, really, don't touch? If you do, you'll know what God knows. You'll be like God. You'll have all this knowledge. And you see what it is. It's a temptation that we still struggle with today to put ourselves in the place of God. To understand that we know better than God. You know, if you're a parent, have you ever had your child declare to you at the age of eight, well, I'm just going to run away from home. And I'm going to live life this way, and here's how I'm going to make it. You're like, good luck. Because we know that it's a ridiculous claim. But we make that claim to God all the time. How often do we come across a teaching or instruction from God and somehow, maybe we don't say it out loud, but we have the audacity to say, I know better than that. I can be smarter than that. I can outthink this. And so when Peter's coming along, he says, I'm asking you to humble yourself. You're living in a situation where you're receiving pressure from all kinds. It doesn't make any sense to do some of the things that Jesus is calling us to do, such as pray for your enemies. Forgive those who wound you. And yet this is Peter. Humble yourself for the Lord. I, I had the opportunity, for those that have signed up for that Beyond the Sermon, we started something several weeks ago where we just meet over at Black Rifle Coffee on Wednesday nights at 7. And we just go through the scripture that's coming up. So this past Wednesday night, I had a chance to meet with a group, and we went through the scriptures. And we started talking about this. I, I love it because I get to receive wisdom, and I get to hear what other people are wrestling with. And so the sermon is never just a one-man show around here, okay? It's the product of lots of prayer and lots of interaction and lots of people encouraging me and, and giving me ideas. Well, I got one of those great ideas. Joe Fox, who was with us, he gave me a definition of humility. Now, he may have got this from a hundred other places, but I'm going to quote him, okay? Here's what he says. Humility is this. It's the willingness to unconditional obedience. Peter's saying, you want to move beyond just religion? You want to find a faith that leans into this living hope that is Jesus? Offer your obedience to God unconditionally. Where no longer do you say, I think I know better. Lord, I, I'll give you 75%, but there's 25% that I really want to be in control of. Lord, I'll offer all these other up to you, but these my entertainment choices, they're mine. I'm going to hang on to them. I'm going to give you everything, Father, but this relationship that I'm in. Father, I, you can have all of it, but I've got my career. That's mine. No, you must this, un, this willingness to give unconditional obedience. Where you say, Jesus is Lord. And there's no asterisk that you put on that afterwards. Let's go back to the verse. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing this, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Peter uses this phrase at least three times in this book. Be sober-minded. So what's sober-minded mean? Sober-minded simply means this. To be no longer under the influence, free from the influence of any intoxicating thing. Where, where you're, not, you're not distracted by. You, you don't have a haze or a fog. And it means a single-minded focus. This is why, you know, if you read certain cough medications, it says, do not operate heavy equipment, you know, while taking this. I would just like the chance to try to operate heavy equipment sometime. Sounds like fun. But Peter says, with that diligence, as you move through this, with an with a unconditional willingness to, to obedience, then be single Focused, not distracted and pulled in all the different directions that, that culture is going to pull us. Now, what's the single focus? Well, I just want to remind you, he's given us this single focus already. So I want to take you back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. If you want to write a reference here that sends you back that way, you can look this up later. But here it is, 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... So here's the same word, same concept. Once again, this is Peter saying, get this, understand this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I want you to have a single-minded focus and I want you to look at what's coming. Jesus is coming. You set your hope there on the grace that we're going to fully understand someday when Jesus comes back in all of his glory. Set your focus there. Not at some point that's within this life. But you set it on what's coming. Remember, we live at odds with the world. We're strangers and aliens in this place. But we have this living hope that goes beyond even the grave. And he's saying you live with a single-minded focus on that. Now... Peter is not unconcerned about what these Christians are experiencing or about what you're experiencing. But what Peter knows is that becoming focused simply on that, the here and now, only leads to despair. And he is trying to call us to something that's beyond despair. He's saying, if you'll humble yourself, you have a God that's going to lift you up. He's going to get to that in just a second. He says, but in the meantime, you have this single focus. You're not swerving all over the road. You're not distracted. And you're not desiring something that culture wants you to be drawn to and intoxicated with. It means we've got to be single-minded focused and we've got to not become intoxicated with the lull and the lure of what culture can offer, such as success, such as popularity, such as some getting caught up in some kind of wealth, being seen as successful in, in your career, 
many of these things are fine and good, but Peter says that cannot be the single focus of your life because it will be a distraction. We, we wrestle in this world with distracting ourselves to death, don't we? Where if I can just scroll mindlessly through Instagram, somehow I'll make all the worries go away. I'll make all the concerns go. He says, no, no, be sober-minded in this. Single focus on the fact that Jesus is coming back and there's a victory that's already been won and is coming into fullness. And we live like that. That's how we walk through this life. Then he's got this next part where he talks about this imagery of this lion. Look what he says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. This, this is why I think this is a Garden of Eden kind of reference, because Satan shows up in the form of an animal in that story, and here he is again. And it's easy to take this passage and see what Peter's saying and say, man, that's scary. I mean, you've got this image of a lion, and he's roaming around, and he's just on the hunt, and he's roaring, and he's making his presence known. As I was preparing for this, I had a flashback to a, an event in my um, high school and early college days where myself and about four or five at least of my buddies decided that we'd go camping on my grandmother's land just outside of Graham, Texas. And so we, we were going to be rugged mountain men for the weekend. Now, granted, we were all city boys, but this was our big, you know, 48 hours survival kind of training. So we have enjoyed this evening. We've been fishing. We've actually attempted to cook some of the fish that, that we caught. I don't know if we dared each other to eat it or not. But we're sitting around the campfire, and we've talked about future dreams and hopes and girls that we like, and we've done all of the things that we're supposed to have talked about. And while we're sitting around the campfire, the, the sun has just been setting. And this turns out to be one of those nights where there's not a lot of moonlight. And so we're out there, and so it gets dark. D-A-R-K, okay? It, and... So there's the fire, which is now dying, and then there's about five feet of soft light, and then there's just inky black out there. And while we're chatting, because we think we're all so tough, suddenly we hear a coyote howl. That's cool. Then we hear a second coyote howl. And then it sounds like four or five, and then it goes from just howling to that yapping like they're on the move and they're real excited about something because they're coming like they found dinner. And it's getting louder, and I'm pretty sure it was the darkness playing some trick on our minds, but we all became, I mean, we are scanning into the darkness trying to figure out where this is coming from. And... Finally, we all abandon any kind of pride that we would have as men. We, we just cash it all in. Because it sounds like they are coming for us. A rabid pack of 
400 coyotes, we're convinced. So I don't remember which one of us made the first move, but at some point we decide, get in the tent. And so we scramble very ungracefully into the tent on top of each other. We're like in our sleeping bags, like that's extra protection. And we zip that up real quick. And then it kind of just goes quiet for a second. And we're like, And then somebody, I, I wish I was making this up. Then somebody says, they can chew through the tent. <laughs> and we just took this at face value. And so now it's five guys trying to pile out of the tent. Ungraceful. It's not like we said, okay, you go first and you go second. You go We're just all scrambling out. One of my buddies had come in his 1976 pickup that he just called, Chevy pickup called Old Blue, simply a bench seat across it. Five of us pile into that truck, shut the doors, and again, I wish I was making it up. Somebody says, lock the doors. <laughs> Do you know how many coyotes we saw that night? Zero. We heard the roar. But we weren't in any danger. Peter is claiming a reality. The devil, Satan, has been granted a certain range right now. But Peter also boldly says... Him. That's the call. What I want you to notice from my silly story and from what Peter is saying is that we can resist, but Peter never says, fear him. In fact, you won't find any place where it says to fear Satan. Why? Because Peter's saying you have a living hope. You have the power that it takes, not because you're special, but because Jesus can walk out of a tomb casting off death like it was a garment. And show Satan and death that there may be a roar there, but there's no longer a bite And that's what Peter wants us to hang on to. Is that we would humble ourselves and then we would resist. Not resist because we're huddled and we're afraid and we're whatever's coming at us, but because we are living with a single-minded focus that we know who has eternity in his hands and we know how the story comes out. And it may look bad now and there may be howling and roaring and it may be dark all around us. but we can resist because the tomb's empty and our hope is alive. Let's wrap it up. Last part he goes through is this. Verse 10 and 11. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, 
and establish you. Say that again. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you're taking notes, right out beside this paragraph, right, Peter's prayer. This, this is Peter praying for those that received the letter first and praying for you and me. And he acknowledges, yes, there is a suffering temporarily. But the God of all grace, you see how this theme's running all the way through. There's a day coming when he will kick into motion the plan that he's always had. And all that you feel like you've been lost or perhaps has been taken from you will be restored. You will be confirmed. You will be strengthened and established. What does that mean? If you look at some of the other translations, it will be steadfast. You'll be able to stand your ground. You'll be able to be solid foot, footing. This is what God's done. I want you to notice all the verbs here belong to God. Religion will tell you work harder, try harder, and do more. What living hope says is Jesus has done it already. God is the one that will go into motion now to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what Peter wants us to hang on to. Is this living hope. Not hope that I'm going to somehow get my life together. Not living hope that somehow if I will do the right things, God will finally find um, some type of pleasing in me. Will finally find some kind of reason to accept me. We'll finally find some kind of reason to make, okay, I'll give you a shot, Scott. But no, because of what Jesus has done, I have a living hope. Because of what Jesus has done, you have a living hope that is no longer based on your spiritual resume that says, look at what I've accomplished. But you can be restored. And you know what rest restoration means? Made new again. That's the living hope. So I want to end with three questions. I want you to take these because I want you to wrestle with these. As you wrestle with the living hope. Question number one, one is this. Will we be humble? And I intentionally put the we into these questions because I want to know if you will be humble and I want you to wrestle with that. But not only that, will we as a church, as the body of Christ in this time, in this place, will we be humble? Will we move in the ways of this community without feeling the need to be holier than thou? Will we be humble even when we feel like we've got the right view on it to still be people that love and serve the community and not say... Nope, you're not worth our time. Will we be humble and obedient to God even when it doesn't seem to make sense? Second question is, 
Will we stand firm? Satan's going to throw all kinds of things at us. He's going to throw all kinds of things at you. As this church continues to move out into the community, I am incredibly excited and I'm also concerned because I know that's when Satan's going to fire up some of his biggest attacks. See, Peter is affirming that spiritual warfare is real. Will we stand firm? Will we have that single-minded focus or will we get distracted? And the last one is ending where Peter ends. Will we pray? Will we be a church? Will you be a person of prayer? Trust in your God. See, here's what prayer is. Prayer is an opportunity for you to vocalize to God your trust. God, I'm going to put these things in your hands. Maybe it's something you've been holding on to. I'm going to trust you with this. And your ability to vocalize it out loud, or at least mentally in your head, to be specific about it, is an opportunity for God to say, I've got that. This is why all of our Vision 5, as we seek for every one of you to lead someone else to Jesus, and as we seek to experience this harvest of baptisms, that's why it's all led by prayer. This is what we are praying for. This is what I'm encouraging you and asking you to pray about. Because we're opening ourselves up in that moment for God to come in and do what God wants to do. Because He will honor those prayers. So will we be humble? Will we stand firm? And will we pray? Because we will be odd to the world. We will feel out of place even though we are in our place. But through it all, we have a living So what I'd like to do is I'd like to end like Peter does. As we wrap up this series, I'd like to pray for you like Peter does. So if you would, bow your head. And I'm going to give you just a few moments of silence because we live in a busy world. For you to have a conversation with God. For you to cast your anxieties onto him. And invite the living hope into your life. And then I'll conclude the prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that so often I think, I've got this. Somehow I know better. I want to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and think that I can somehow be your equal. Father, I pray for myself that I would have an unconditional obedience to you. I pray for us as a church, 
for every person experiencing this message right now that we would be humble before you. That even though we may go through struggles and suffering right now, that you will exalt, you will restore, and you will confirm. Father, so often I hear Satan's roar and I get scared. Father, you simply say, resist. There's nothing to fear here. Because Satan's already thrown his worst at Jesus. And Jesus experienced the cross in my place and then walked out of a tomb as our living hope. So, Father, may we move beyond any kind of just religious practices into a relationship with your Son. A relationship with Jesus who is alive and is King and is Lord. And may we always be ready to answer anybody who asks, why do you have this kind of hope? It's because we would say Jesus is that hope. So, Father, for anyone that this message still hasn't made it way from the head into their heart. I pray that you would deliver it deep and you would make it real as soon as today and this week. Jesus, we are so grateful that you experienced the cross, you went to the tomb, and then you left it all behind and that you are now Lord and King. And for that, Father, we praise you, and we are grateful that you are a living hope. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.